Hello, welcome back to another episode of Casual Criminalist. As always, I'm your host, Simon. Well, I'm here, one of my writers. This time, Emma. Thank you, Emma, has risen me a script. The Monster of Morlaby. Uh, Morlaby Street, sorry. Uh, if you're new here, the format is I've never read this before. It's uh, it's going to be about crime. The show's called The Casual Criminalist. You know that. <coughs> sorry. I'm having this lingering cough. It's been going on forever. And it will probably seem like it's stretched out for weeks for you guys watching because I've recorded like three episodes of Casual Criminalist this week. Anyway, let's just jump into it, shall we? Every country has their infamous criminals. The UK has Jack the Ripper, Harold Shipman, Amelia Dyer, the Angel Maker. The US has Ed Gein, John Wayne Gacy, Ted Bundy, H.H. Holmes, and many, many more. What's up, America? You got a lot of those serial killers, don't you? And South Africa has Daisy DeMelka, the ABC murderer, the Phoenix Strangler, Andre Stander, and Gert Van Ruin. Uh, we've already covered both Andre Stander and Moses Atole, the ABC murderer, on this show, but a few of our South African viewers have suggested that we cover Gert Van Ruin, aka the monster of Morlaby Street, as well. Active in both Pretoria and Johannesburg during the late 1980s, Van Ruin's crimes shocked the nation, leaving deep scars on the collective psyche of an entire generation. The fates of at least six of his victims are still unknown, and their stories have often been described as the tragedy that won't die. But although Van Ruin is the first person that many think of when The Missing Six is mentioned, there's another name linked to his, that of his fiancée, Joey Harhoff, who was not only his accomplice, but his last victim as well. Their crimes were never solved, so the story doesn't have a happy ending. But according to some experts, this was the first confirmed case of a serial killer couple in South Africa. Um, the crimes weren't solved. It sounds like, I mean, we know who this is. I guess they just didn't wrap it up or anything, like, neatly. But we know who this person is, and hopefully they're dead. Huh? Maybe? South Africa, you got death penalty, right? I feel like you got that death penalty vibe. I think they'd have that in South Africa. My, my grandma lives in South Africa. She lives in Johannesburg. I don't know. Maybe they wouldn't, actually. No, they probably don't. The End of Innocence Hey Siri, does South Africa have the death penalty? Siri, it's always just asking me, like, you ask Siri a question, and they're like, I'm gonna send some results to your iPhone. It's like, Siri, that's not what I wanted. I just wanted you to be like, yes, it does. No. It doesn't. Why can't you just obey me, Siri? You I've seen a lot of nostalgic posts on social media about the 1980s. Most of them go on and on about how life seemed so much simpler back then. The internet wasn't yet a thing. Phones weren't cordless. You had to carry a boombox around if you wanted music on the go. Going to the mall was the best thing ever. And the apartheid regime still ruled South Africa with an iron fist. So there's no internet. There's no music. There's no the phones have cords and apartheid. It's like, spot the which one of these things is out of place. Since I'm a 90s baby myself, I have no idea what it's like to grow up in the pre in Pretoria in the 80s, but I do know that everyone goes on about how safe the world around them was, at least for white people. The white kids from the suburbs were able to ride their bicycles in the streets and play outside until the sun went down, go to the corner store for ice cream, and walk to school without having to look out for possible abductors or child molesters. Um, this isn't statistically correct, though, is it? I thought... The, the reason it seems safer in the past is because it wasn't safer. We were just more ignorant. It's sort of like saying, oh, no, driving cars was safer in the past. None of the cars had airbags, so obviously no one was crashing. We had no need for airbags or seatbelts. It's just, <laughs> right? The world was dangerous, just as 
Someone must be smoking in the hallway of my building. That's really weird. I'm just sitting in my office and I have that. Is that tobacco smoke? Or is it on my jacket? Sorry, that random tangent aside, let's get back to child molesters. But as we all know, serial killers and rapists have always been among us, and when they go hunting, it's often the innocent who are first of all victims of their dark fantasies. And the tree-lined suburbs of Pretoria were filled with naive innocents who believed themselves safe from the dangers of the outside world. On the 11th of January 1990, the 16-year-old Joan Boyson was running late for school. By the time she finally reached the bus stop in Church Square, Pretoria, the school bus had already left. Church Square is an open-air market-turned-park that made up the historic center of Pretoria, and it was already buzzing with people, and a few passers-by smiled at her as they made their way to work. Deciding to wait for the next bus, Joan placed the brown cardboard suitcase she used for school down next to her. She uses a brown cardboard suitcase to go to school? That's weird. And she calmly watched the morning traffic as it flowed past her. Within minutes, a white Ford pickup truck, aka a Bucky, for our South African fans, okie dokie, slowed. I love it. It's, I, I don't know. I think because we see so much, you know, Hollywood, like American TV and stuff, whenever I watch Australian shows, and I, I guess South Africa's, there's, uh, you know, similar situation, they have all these slang words that you're not really familiar with, even though they're all speaking English. Whenever I, there's, there was a crime show I was watching on Netflix set in Australia, and I was like, it's like a weird mix of America and the UK. And it's, also known as Australia. Fascinating tangent, Simon, thank you. A blonde, nicely dressed middle-aged woman lowered her window. Smiling, the woman asked Joan whether she'd be interested in a job. To Wed Potgita, a journalist who wrote a book called Gruesome, The Crimes and Criminals That Shook South Africa, would interview Joan soon after, and she told him that when I told her I was still at school and not looking for a job, she started picking up a conversation with me. Joan explained that she'd missed her bus and was waiting for the next one. The woman politely asked where Joan was headed and then offered to give her a ride to school. Joan didn't think much of the kind offer from the old lady. Years later, she would admit that yes, her parents had taught her that you didn't get into strange cars with strange men. But that didn't include well-dressed middle-aged ladies who could have been your grandma, did it? Yeah, uh, I... Obviously, it's way, like, statistically, it's got to be way, way, way safer to get into the car of the middle-aged woman. And if you were like, nah, I'm good, you could be a predator. The middle-aged woman would be like, what the f***? I'm a middle-aged woman. But also, that, you know, that doesn't mean it's impossible, and it doesn't mean it never happens. And of course there are middle-aged women predators. Of course there are. There's just less. So, yeah, don't get into cars with strangers. Strange men, strange women, even non-strange, even people. If you don't know them and they're not a police officer, don't get in their car, alright? So Joan accepted, gratefully got in the truck, and made the same mistake that Hansel and Gretel made by underestimating the old lady who lured them into her house with promises of all the sweets that they could eat. At first all went well, and then the woman asked Joan whether she would mind if they made a quick pit stop at her house first. Despite her anxiety about being late for class, Joan didn't want to be rude and agreed, and the woman drove the three kilometers to 227 Mulherby Street in Capitol Park, one of the oldest suburbs in Pretoria. Pretoria is the capital of South Africa, right? I always get confused and think it's Johannesburg, but it's not. It's Johannesburg is like the commercial capital or political capital or something like that, or Pretoria is the political capital. Like, but the main, the big, you know, the one on the maps or whatever is Pretoria, I think. After parking at the ends of the long driveway, the woman turns to Joan and explains that she had to meet with someone first, and Joan was more than welcome to come inside and wait with her. Once again, Joan's manners won out, and she politely followed the older woman into the house, accepting the woman's offer to make her a cold drink. During this whole time, I'll be like, yo, lady, 
Did you understand? That was look. The bus would have come by now, and I'd have been at school. You were gonna give me a ride, and now we're in your house having fucking lemonade. I've got to go to school. I'm missing maths. I'm getting in trouble. As they were making their way down the long, darkened hallway to the kitchen, a balding, pot-bellied middle-aged man stepped out of one of the shadowed bedrooms and loomed over the startled Joan. To quote. I will never forget those evil eyes of his cutting right through me, and that cruel expression on his face when he slapped me. When he pressed that huge gun into my face, I instinctively realized, Joan, today you listen to this man, or you're dead. And she did listen. The woman appeared at the man's side and handed Joan a glass of water and a handful of pills. Joan would be forced to drink the pills at gunpoint before the woman led her into a darkened bedroom. There, Joan was stripped of her clothing and shoes and handcuffed to the bed. The woman then left the room, leaving a tearful and terrified Joan alone with the older man. She would be violated before he released her and then forced into a wardrobe before the man flicked a catch on the door, locking her inside. Joan and her father often watched MacGyver together, and she recounts how she was looking for anything that would help her escape her current situation. Heart beating wildly, she felt around in the dark until her fingers found an old polystyrene cooler box. The cooler had a thin plastic handle attached to it, and Joan tore it off. She pressed against the wardrobe doors, managing to open it a bit, and she used the cooler box's handle to flip the catch on the door, freeing herself. You legend. She got dressed in her clothes, her heart racing, and peered out into the darkened hallway towards the kitchen. The house seemed to be empty, and she slipped down the hallway. She noticed that the blonde woman was outside in the garden and quietly made her way to the lounge where she found a phone. She called her cousin. Um, what's up? <laughs> 999, do it! Or whatever South African emergency police is. She called her cousin, letting her know where she was and what had happened to her, and then made her way back to the front door. With the handcuffs still dangling from her wrist, Joan then crept out of the house and, satisfied that the older woman hadn't noticed her, started running barefoot down the long driveway towards the closed gate, her heart pounding in her ears. She barely made it halfway down the driveway before she heard a startled cry behind her and realized that the blonde woman had seen her. A car was slowly driving down the street when Joan burst through the gate, and Joan ran into the road, waving her arms to get the car to stop. The blonde woman made a grab for her, urging her to head back inside, but Joan managed to jerk away and ran towards the slowing car. Well, so it was like, please come back inside. Uh, fuck off, you witch. <laughs> The 26-year-old Ernst Vermeulen had noticed the blonde, barefoot girl running in the middle of the street, arms waving frantically, and came to a stop. He noticed the older woman coming up behind her and got out of his car, wanting to find out if anything was the matter and how he could help. The woman made another grab at the girl, but she jerked away and ran up to Ernst's side. Please, rescue me. They're trying to kidnap me. Ernst turned to the blonde woman, thinking that maybe there had been some kind of misunderstanding. The woman once again grabbed the girl by her arm, was apologizing to Ernst for the girl's behavior, telling her to return to the house so that they could talk it out. If you're in this situation, um, and obviously it's a, a younger girl and someone who could reasonably be her mother or whatever, um, listen, if, you, if you're in Ernst's position here, Ernst's role should be like, all right, I understand, but there's a situation going on here, so we're just going to call the police and get this all figured out. I'm sure everything's fine. But just in case. And but maybe the police will arrive and they'll be like, dude, this is her mum and this is her daughter and she's a bit rebellious and all of this shit and she's just pulling your legs. The thing the police are not going to say to you then is you are wasting our time. What they're going to say to you is good f***ing job. That is when Ernst noticed the handcuffs and realized that the girl was indeed in trouble. He told the woman that he didn't mind being stopped and that he only wanted to make sure that the girl was okay and that he would be escorting her back to the house himself. Why would he take her back to the house? He placed a protective arm around the girl and pulled her away from the older woman. The woman studied the two of them for a moment, then nodded, smiled politely, and said that she'd meet them back at the house. Call the police. Now, what's up? 
Oh, this is back in the day. They don't have cell phones, do they? Um, oh, what to do? What to do? Go to a neighbor's house. Go to someone else's house. Go to a payphone. Something like that. Ernst watches the woman return to the driveway of 227 Mulherby Street before he helped the shaking girl into the passenger side of his car. Oh, good. Good. Good job. She really... The joke that the woman... The, the older woman fell for this? <laughs> okay. When he got into his car, Joan burst into a panicked explanation, telling him what had transpired that morning as he drove off, keeping an eye on the rearview mirror to make sure that they weren't followed, intent on getting the girl somewhere safe as he listened to her horrific tale. Joan became lethargic as the adrenaline coursing through her body subsided and the drugs that she'd been forced to swallow kicked in, but Ernst managed to get her home address out of her and he took her there. She calmed as they drove down the familiar street and then she passed out. Um, dude, the hospital is where you should be going. <laughs> like, immediately. Just get her to the hospital. Vermeulen would carry her to the front door of her parents' house, and, and he had to explain to a panicked Anne C. Boyson what her daughter had been through as he placed her down on her still unmade bed. Soon, the house was swarming with police, and wheels would be set in motion to capture the two people who had abducted and molested the 16-year-old girl. The Monster of Mulherby Street Gerd van Ruen was born on the 21st of June, 1937 in Pretoria and was the eldest of four children. His mother ran a boarding house in what was called Blowit or Blood Street and his father managed a construction business when he wasn't gambling the money away or spending it on alcohol. It shouldn't come as a surprise that his father was abusive. It is, after all, a constant theme on the casual criminalist. Not much else is known about Van Ruin's earlier years, but at the age of 17, he stole his first car, and as punishment, his dad gave him eight lashes with a whip, a standard punishment for the time, because, do remember here, the past was the worst. Van Ruin's parents sent him to reform school, hoping that it would straighten out his behavior since his parents couldn't handle him anymore, but he escaped, and a year later, he'd steal another car as well as a gun. He escaped for a year. <laughs> Holy what are you up to? Just living on the streets as a kid, being a criminal? Some Oliver Twist Once again, Van Ruin was shipped off to reform school, this time in Cape Town. He would steal another car and some clothes a year later, and he made his way back to Pretoria, where he was once again captured and sent to a rehabilitation center. Once he was released, Van Ruin got a job working alongside his brothers in his father's construction business, and he seemed to put his rebellious ways behind him. Soon after he turned 20, Van Ruin would marry his first wife, despite his family's insistence that she was a cheap Holy sh! <laughs> Don't marry that girl. She's a cheap s. Fucking <laughs> hell! Allegedly, his mother even insisted that the girl should wear a grey dress to their wedding, since Virginia White was too good for the likes of her. Your parents sound like real horrible people. They would have four children together before getting divorced, and Van Ruyen handed his children over to his mother's care, not bothering to keep in touch with them after that. Great father, father of the year there. In 1967, the 26-year-old Van Ruen met the 19-year-old Aletta and got married to her within three months. Aletta claimed that it had been love at first sight for her and she had felt charmed by the smooth-talking Van Ruen. They would have two sons together, and to the outside world, they seemed like your average middle-class couple. Aletta was the devoted, if somehow neglected, housewife and raised their sons with care and devotion, even making an attempt to get to know Van Ruen's older children and building a relationship with them. Van Ruen was a respected deacon in the church, sang in the choir, made a decent living working with his brothers, and after almost 16 years of marriage, he and Aletta could afford to purchase 227 Mulherby Street, the spacious three-bedroom house in Capitol Park that soon became his fortress. But behind closed doors, their marriage was falling apart. 
Van Royen had lost all interest in having a sexual relationship with his wife and would openly conduct affairs with younger women. Whenever Alessa confronted him about this, he'd beat her, and she learned to turn a blind eye to his goings-on. Oh my god, the past was the worst. His acquaintances didn't particularly like him and would later describe him as a violent man who was quick to settle differences with his fists. He also discussed his interest in young girls during social gatherings and was quoted as having said that the perfect girl's feet should not touch the ground when she is sitting on a chair. Bro, what the f*** are you talking about? You f***ing pedo. What's like, he likes young girls to like, okay, no, he likes children. That's f***ed up. And also, he's just discussing this at social gatherings? What sort of social gatherings are you going to? If I was at a social gathering and someone said that, I'd be like, Bruh, <laughs> what did you just say? And how do we get you on some sort of list? Jesus. And in 1979, it became clear to everyone who knew him that Van Royden wasn't just talk. Two young girls, just 10 and 13, had been playing in the garden at the front of the 13-year-old's house when a car stopped outside their garden gate. A man called them over to his car and asked them whether they wanted some cake. When they refused, good job, he grabbed them and stuffed them in the back of his car, driving off with the two girls screaming and crying in the back seat. He drove them 50 kilometers to, oh my lord, that is a long word, Hearty bees put them. Hearty bees put them. Hearty bees put them. Oh my. That's got to be uh, um, the Dutch, Afrikaans, right? The, the Dutch based language. Because I don't, that, that looks like it. He pulled over in a secluded spot and assaulted them before forcing them to strip down. He would molest the two girls for hours before bundling their naked bodies back into the car in the early hours of the morning and taking them back to where it found them. The parents would later relate how the two crying girls had come stumbling back into the yard, covered in blood and bruises. How are you doing this? How are you now not in prison for at least 20 years? At least? And also now watched for the rest of your life and being banned from anywhere ever going anywhere near children again you f***ing sicko the two girls described van Ruen and his car in detail and their parents realized that the monster who'd taken their children lived only a few houses down the road from them they reported the molestation to the police the next morning and van Ruen was arrested the very same day during his trial magistrate j bauer told van Ruen that you have committed a beastly disgusting and loathsome crime and sentenced van Ruen to four years in prison for the kidnapping and sexual assault of two minors he'd end up serving only three years of his sentence that is not enough that is not enough and at this point, it's going to be, we got to be like, and now you are banned from children. Surely, come on. Three years? That's f***ed up. Aletta would finally divorce him in 1983, taking their sons with her. And Gert would go on to live the life of a well-off and eligible bachelor. He would start corresponding with women who responded to the ads he placed in Lonely Hearts columns in national newspapers. And according to Gordon Harris, the photographer who often took portrait photos for Van Ruen, he would turn into a wannabe Casanova in the years following his divorce, becoming a sleazy womanizer who wanted professional and flattering photos to send to his many girlfriends. But in November 1989, it was a changed man who walked into Harris's studio. He was dressed in a suit and tie, his hair had been combed, and he looked like he'd just returned from church. He was... At his side was a smartly dressed, middle-aged blonde woman holding the hands of two toddlers as well as a younger couple. They wanted family photos, with Van Ruen and the woman playing the part of the doting grandparents, and Harris was surprised by the abrupt turn that his client's requests had taken. To quote, That day, it was the typical good-natured gentleman down the street type of photos. 
Gordon Harris would take the photo that would later immortalize the monster of Mulherby Street, one of a respectable-looking van ruin, next to the woman who'd seemingly helped him turn his life around, Joey Harhoff. The Fiancé Joey was born in Francina van Steden and grew up in the eastern suburbs of Johannesburg. She married her first husband, Garp Stradon, when she was 18 and fell pregnant soon after. According to Joey's daughter, Amor van der West Hazen, Joey's first husband was abusive and after a particularly bad beating, she lost the baby. Joey would divorce Gap within weeks of the death of her baby, but all future relationships with men would be influenced by the abuse that, that, that she'd experienced during her first marriage. Her second husband, Jarpi Harhoff, was a sergeant major in the army. They had four children together, three sons and a daughter, and lived in Valhalla, a suburb on the southern edge of Praetoria, close to the army base where her husband worked. In her memoir, Battered, Abused, Shamed, Joey Harhoff Was My Mother, Amor explains that Joey wasn't a loving, caring mother. Friends and neighbors would later describe Joey as being a strict parent, but according to Amor, the punishments she would doll out bordered on abuse. Amor remembered being punched in the face as a toddler for making too much noise, being locked up alone in the house while her parents went to parties, and when she got older, Joey would tie Amor to her bed before beating her covering her daughter's body in bruises. Wait, she describes, she wasn't a loving, caring mother. It's a bit of a f***ing understatement, isn't it? It's like she beat the shit out of me. Um, she wasn't very loving. <laughs> Amor speculates that at some point during their marriage, Joey had started to refuse to have sex with her abusive husband, and his attention turned to his underage daughter. Joey, Jesus. Joey would often take the boys to her parents for the weekend, leaving the teenage Amor alone with her father. Once her mother confronted Joey about her belief that Harhoff was molesting Amor, Joey blamed her daughter, saying that if her dad was abusing her, it was her own fault for tempting him. With, with, but, 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 no, no. Arv's ill health would cause him to retire early, and he, Joey, and their youngest son moved to Winburg, a small farming community in the Free State. When Harhoff eventually passed away, he left Joey his sizable pension, which, according to Amor, was large enough to keep her mother living comfortably for the rest of her life. Good army pension, then. <laughs> but Joey had started writing to a charming rich man who she'd met through a Lonely Hearts corner ad. She would brag to her friends that the only way she'd ever get married again was to a rich man, and her new suitor definitely fit the bill. He convinced her to move to Praetoria so that they could be together. So in 1987, Joey sold all of her possessions and moved to Praetoria, initially staying in the same apartment complex that Moore shared with her husband. Wait, isn't this the dude? He was just a regular dude who bought, like, after many years of working, he bought a, a house with three bedrooms. He wasn't rich, he was just seemed to be pretty solidly middle class. Within a few weeks, she introduced Van Royen to Amor and told her daughter that she'd met him through a mutual acquaintance. Joey's family and friends who met Van Royen got an immediate dislike for the man, describing him as a know-it-all, overcritical, and a snobby bastard. Within three months, Joey moved into 227 Malherby Street, and everyone started noticing a change in her demeanor. She changed her entire wardrobe to please him, lost some weight, dyed her dark and graying hair blonde, and soon wore a diamond engagement ring that he'd bought for her, showing it off to friends. Acquaintances of Van Ruen allegedly warned Joey that Van Ruen wasn't as well-off as he seemed, and that she had to ensure she protected herself financially in case he died or left her. Joey shrugged off their concerns and started to avoid her family and friends, spending all of her time with Van Ruen, joining him on week-long holidays in Durban and warm baths. The money she'd inherited after her husband's death seemed to evaporate into thin air, and she sold her new car and handed the money over to Van Ruen. 
Almost overnight, she changed from an independent, strong woman into a meek woman who was firmly under Van Ruin's thumb, and she would often tell her daughter that she felt that she couldn't break off her relationship with Van Ruin. Her friends became concerned for her. Once bruises started appearing on her face and recounted how she'd sneak off to call them from a phone booth, anxious at the thought that Van Ruin might realize what she was up to. To quote, Joey reminded us of a child in the presence of a strict grown-up. It was as if she had gotten the order to only speak when she was spoken to. There were times when he spoke cruelly to her in front of her family, as if he wanted to belittle and isolate her. This is such a douche move. Like, when you talk bad about someone and they're right f***ing there, it's like, what sort of what sort of mega douche do you have to be to do that? I don't know if I've ever seen it in real life, because it's just something you see in the movies to portray someone as being a douche. Amor recounts how bizarre her mother started acting, and at one point, Joey had allegedly tried to convince the 24-year-old Amor to leave her husband and marry Van Royen instead so that she could give him children. Since he already had six children of his own, this request didn't make sense to Amor, but after that discussion, Joey ensured that Amor was alone in a room before sending Van Royen in to convince her to change her mind. He pushed Amor up against the wall and started kissing her, but Amor managed to break free and escape. She and her husband never visited 227 Mulherby Street again. Probably a good decision there. If they, if you go to someone's house and that was you, will be like, okay, well, I guess we're not coming around for dinner again, you f***ing weirdos. The last time Amor saw her mother was on the evening of the 14th of January 1990, after she and Van Ruin had broken into Amor's house and told them that they needed a place to hide out for a few days. Your mum is a piece of work. I can't believe that it took you this long, to be honest. I mean, I can because of course it's like complicated emotionally and all of that stuff but your mum's a piece of Amor tried to convince her mother to hand herself over to the police but Joey refused telling her daughter that you don't understand they're going to lock us up they're going to kill us once Van Royen and Joey left Amor and her husband called Amor's aunt Poppy to let her know that Joey and Van Ruin were in trouble with the police Poppy wasn't surprised and what she did next would change Amor's life forever to quote my child, don't you understand? Your mother and that man are the ones who kidnapped those girls. Oh my god, I just got a chill down my spine. How the f does she know that? And why hasn't she done anything about it? What the f is going on? The Missing Six. According to Potgeiter, the newly formed Child Protection Unit of the South African Police Force started looking into child molesters and the disappearances of minors in 1988. Yeah, this is why we weren't afraid of this stuff so much in the past, because they, I don't know when they started doing it elsewhere, but like 1988, that's when they started looking into it. So, so before that, it's just like largely just not really properly dealt with. I mean, holy the pedophiles that became targets of the CPU tried to prey on runaways who haunted the inner city streets, but these children rarely made the news. Much like today, the missing children who did make the news all came from privileged backgrounds, and when several blonde and blue-eyed children started to go missing, the public took notice and their photos began to appear on the bag of milk cartons so that their smiling faces now haunted families all over the country. On the 1st of August 1988, the 14-year-old Tracy Lee Scott Crossley stayed home from school. She had the flu and an eye infection, but later that morning, she decided to go to Cresta Shopping Center, a nearby mall in Randsburg, Johannesburg. He asked her older brother, the 21-year-old Mark, whether he would take her, but he told her that he had things to do, and she ended up walking the short distance to the mall on her own. Their mother, Noreen Scott Crossley, explains that she started worrying about Tracy at 11.30 that morning, and since they didn't have a landline, she took the rest of the day off and headed home. 
When she got home, she found shopping bags on Tracy's bed, including a pair of ballet tights that Tracy had bought that morning, but she was nowhere to be found. Later, witnesses told the police that they'd seen Tracy get into a Volkswagen Beetle with a blonde-haired woman just outside of Craster, and the police started searching for the teenager. She never returned home. In Peter Maritzburg, Eve Harvey sent her 11-year-old daughter, Fiona, to the corner store to buy some milk on the 22nd of December 1988. When she didn't return home, Eve went looking for her and was told that Fiona had been approached by a man in a white Ford Bantam truck and that she'd willingly gone along with him. Witnesses recalled that the truck had the logo and contact details for an unknown construction company on its doors. On the 7th of June, 1989, 12-year-old Joan Horn and a group of her friends were heading to a dog show that was hosted at their school in West Park, Pretoria. A blonde woman in a white truck pulled up alongside the group of girls and asked whether one of them would be interested in helping her look for someone in a nearby shopping center. She offered to pay them 20 rands for their time, almost equal to 180 rand today, a fortune for a 12-year-old, and Joan agreed, telling her friends that she would catch that later. She never did. In Kempton Park, Johannesburg, 12-year-old Anne-Marie Wapena and 11-year-old Odette Boucher left school grounds on the 22nd of September 1989. They planned on spending the day swimming at Anne-Marie's house, but witnesses saw them getting into an unknown vehicle with a blonde woman. They were never seen again. And on the 3rd of November 1989, another girl from Kempton Park would go missing when the 13-year-old Yolanda Wessels was picked up from school by a blonde woman driving a green Volkswagen minivan. The other school children were able to provide police with a full description, and sketches of her were placed in both local and national newspapers. Speculation soon followed that the description matched that of Yolanda's aunt, Joey Harhoff. The disappearances of these missing girls would all be investigated separately, but it wasn't until 16-year-old Joan managed to escape from 227 Mulherby Street that the police would finally be able to link the cases together. The Chase Barely two hours after Joan Boyson's mother called for help, the police swarmed 227 Mulherby Street, but the house was empty. An investigation was immediately launched, and the inhabitants were identified as Van Ruin and his fiancée, Joey Harhoff. Evidence was collected, and the police started looking for the couple. Yeah, if that if, if you're, like, kidnapping children and one of them escapes, you're like, tick-tock, tick-f***-tock. You must have some sort of exit plan, right? You must be re- You must have some sort of exit strategy. Sources later informed the police that Van Ryan and Joey were seen driving down to Durban in a white truck, matching the description provided by Joan Boyson, and the police decided to wait. In the meantime, local media was buzzing with the news that the police were on the lookout for two people in connection with the kidnappings of various missing girls in Pretoria, and friends and family members slowly started linking Joey and Van Ruin to their crimes. On the evening of the 14th of January 1990, Amor would call the police to let them know that Van Ruin and Joey were back in Pretoria and had just broken into their home begging for sanctuary. Amor and her husband would both be questioned by the police, and that evening her husband noticed that the house had been placed under surveillance. On the morning of the 15th of January 1900, Van Ryan and Joey would head home. Maybe they thought the worst of it was over, I don't know, but as soon as they neared 227 Herbie Street, blue lights started flashing and the chase was on. Are you insane? You are literally wanted by the police for the abduction of multiple children and their potential murder. And you're like, ah, it's probably died down by now. Let's go home. No, you're but Van Ryan and Joey had prepared for this. The couple knew they had only two choices, die or allow themselves to be caught and end up having to explain what happened to the missing six. They certainly knew what they had done to the girls, and at this point, South Africa still had the death penalty. So, either way, the end result will be the same. You did have a third option, don't go f***ing home. Just escape into Africa's really big, just go on the run. 
that that was your other option, but instead you went home for some insane reason. According to Detective Don Chandler, one of the police officers who took part in the chase during the apartheid era, the South African police had the authority to shoot to kill any criminal or suspect who was fleeing the scene of a crime. Oh my god. <laughs> Surely it depends on the crime. But in Van Royen's case, General Chris Serfontine, one of the founders of the Child Protection Unit, had issued strict instructions that no one was to shoot either Van Royen or Joey Harhoff. He needed answers, and in order for him to get that, he needed Van Royen alive. As such, the police chased the, oh, they're going to kill each other for sure. Or they're gonna he, they're gonna kill themselves because uh, Emma at the beginning mentioned that there wasn't like uh, there wasn't the tie up or whatever you want to call it the satisfactory ending. It's because they took their own lives, right? Or he shot her and then he shot himself, or vice versa, something like that. As such, the police chased the white truck for almost three kilometers, first down Malherby Street, up Paul Kruger, taking a sharp left, then down Flower Street, over the Apes River Bridge, around the intersection, and up the M1 motorway, heading north. From there, it was an open road, and once Van Rohn gained enough speed, any of the slipways that branched off into the suburbs of Pretoria North could grant him an easy exit. To keep him from doing exactly that, Detective Chandler shot at the white truck and managed to hit one of the tires. This is like a movies. The white truck swerved and came to a sudden stop on the left side of the motorway. Colonel Rudy, Van Alst, and Detective Chandler came to a stop behind the white truck, their tires skidding on the loose gravel, and they jumped out of their vehicle, service pistols in hand. Colonel Van Alst describes what happened next, quote, When we heard the first shot, we immediately knew that he had shot her through the head, right there on his lap. We were still running toward the backy when he pressed the gun against his own head and blew himself into eternity. It played out before us like scenes from a movie. And just like that, the monster of Malherby Street was dead. On the 30th anniversary of the death, Detective Chandler would tell Jacaranda FM, a local radio station, that it was one of the biggest cases in South Africa that I've ever investigated, and it was taken out right from under our noses. Working on a case like that, on those children, you know their whole history. You talk to their family, their friends, their school friends, and playmates. At the end of the day, you almost feel like they were your own child and we really wanted to solve that case. There was no doubt in our minds that we wanted to catch them and get to the end of this and find out what had happened to those children. The police searched every corner of the truck that had haunted the streets of Pretoria and came across two wills written by both Van Rohn and Joey as well as a letter that Joey had addressed to his mother asking for her forgiveness. Quoting it, Remember me as a child who once upon a time loved you very much. I don't have money anymore, but please accept this rose in my memory. Don't grieve for me. I loved Gert very much. He gave me the kind of love no one else would give me. My Bible taught me that there is no forgiveness for someone who takes the life that God has given them. Just know that I didn't have a choice. Don't judge Gert for his actions, because we're leaving that up to the Almighty God. If there is an Almighty God up there, he is going to judge your actions, uh, let's just say fairly harshly, and you will uh, burn in hell for a very long time. I don't think you will be, because it's not real, but... It's, it'd be nice if you were, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? God would judge you harshly, you child-murdering sicko. I can honestly say that I'm happy to report that her entire family scoffed at the letter, as well as the final demands that she made in it. Joey wanted to be buried next to the man she claimed to love, but they were both cremated, and it's anyone's guess what happened to their remains. Thrown in the dumpster out back? Who cares? I like to think that their ashes have been dumped in a wastebasket and forgotten about, and I think it would be an odd sort of justice for the couple who selfishly denied so many families a sense of closure and peace. Investigations and Theories For your own mental well-being, I want you to take a deep breath. Writing that last section hit me hard, so I can only imagine 
how you might be feeling right now, and it's not going to get any better. Um, yeah. Yeah, I've mentioned it before. Like, the, the ones, like, where it's the... I mean, all of it's hard. But when it's people and kids, it's just, it's just worse. It's just, it just is. Following Van Roon and Joey's death, 227 Marherby Street was all but torn apart in an effort to find any information regarding the missing children that the CPU was still looking for. Spectators in the media crowded Marherby Street with their cars and bodies, and soon the house was dubbed the House of Horrors. The garden surrounding the house was dug up and the swimming pool removed, all in an effort to see if the girls had been buried there. Some of Anne-Marie and Odette's belongings were found in the house, along with their addresses. Witnesses in Peter Maritzburg were shown photos of Van Ruen's white truck, and the logo on its doors linked it to the disappearance of Fiona Harvey. A letter that Joey had left for her daughter confirmed that they'd kidnapped Joan Horn in an attempt to blackmail her father, and Yolanda Wessel's friends confirmed that Joey Harhoff was indeed the person who'd kidnapped her, confirming Joey's family's suspicions that she'd handed her own niece over to Van Royen in a misguided attempt to keep him satisfied. And that is some f***ed up shit right there. Tracy Lee Scott Crosley was the only one who couldn't directly be tied to either Van Royen or Joey. A letter Van Royen's ex-wife would move back into 227 Mulherby Street for a while, but in 1996, the bank confiscated the house and handed it over to the police. On the 13th of May 1996, the House of Horrors would be dismantled piece by piece. The roof was removed and expected for any spores or hair or DNA evidence that might confirm the presence of the girls at any point in time. The walls and floors were scanned in an effort to find any hidey holes that Van Royen might have created. The garden was dug up again, properties that Van Royen had worked on were overturned, and any bones that were found were established to be animal bones. But there still wasn't a sign of the missing girls. Over the years that followed, multiple theories surrounding their deaths would raise further interest in the case. Van Royen's own son, Flippy Van Royen, would testify that the girls were all killed in satanic rituals. He also claimed that their bodies had been dissolved in acid. While spending time in a mental institution, he allegedly told a fellow patient that at least three of the girls had been buried in KwaZulu-Natal, a resort his father used to frequent. He would be imprisoned for six years for providing false witness and the trauma he'd caused the missing six's families. Wait, how much? How long did that guy get earlier in the video? Three years for molesting two children and beating them? And this guy got six years for just lying? Which I get is bad and wrong, but it's not the same level of bad and wrong, is it? What's going on? Some speculated that Van Royen had owned a green trunk that was filled with photos of children along with monetary values attached to them. The trunk was allegedly dropped off at the home of one of his accomplices with the orders that it was to be destroyed. Its existence could never be proven. One of the more pervasive theories is that top officials in the apartheid government were somehow involved in a paedophile ring and that Van Royen sourced girls with them. This theory never had any concrete evidence linked to it. That sounds like a conspiracy theory. Others speculated that Van Royen was part of a human trafficking ring and that he would transport the girls to Durban where they would be loaded into shipping containers heading for Mozambique. Allegedly, there were reports that he had once been fined for speeding while on his way to Durban, and the traffic official who wrote his fine noted that there were two sleeping girls in the back of his vehicle. However, no concrete evidence could be found to suggest that he was, in fact, smuggling children. That is mad suspicious, though, isn't it? Lieutenant Colonel Mike Van Aert had been, has been investigating the missing six on and off for over 10 years, and he claims to have files upon files filled with conspiracy theories that have been looked into over the last 30 years, but they still don't have any answers. But Lieutenant Colonel Van Aert is sure of one thing. If Van Royen hadn't met Joey, he wouldn't have been able to abduct those girls. Otherwise, girls would have started disappearing long before he met her. To quote him, Back in those days, we didn't have a term 
like serial killer. I think this was definitely a serial case. Not one of those children were abducted with the knowledge that Von Ryan and Joey would be releasing them later. Whatever happened to them, Gert was the main culprit. Joey got a kick out of it, I think. Not necessarily in the use and abuse of the children. She wanted to keep him happy, and look what it brought her. His love. I think it was important to her. She did it for him. For 30 years on, some progress has been made, however little. Detective Chandler is still part of the team of volunteers who were looking into the disappearances of the missing six, and even though they hadn't found a trace of the missing girls, some arrests have been made of people thought to have been involved in the disappearances. But many of the girls' families have accepted the fact that their daughters are never coming back. Some of them have passed away. Some are still looking. And that little spark of hope is the reason why the case of the missing six has been dubbed the tragedy that won't die. So, in remembrance, is a list of the girls again. Tracy Lee Scott Crossley, Fiona Harvey, Joan Horn, Anne-Marie Wapner, Odette Boucher, and Yolanda Bessels. Dismembered Appendices Number 1 In the Krugersdorp murderers episode, you asked whether South Africa had the death penalty, and I asked it again today because I have a very limited memory apparently. We did, up until the 6th of June 1995, if Joey and Van Royen had been convicted, it is possible that they wouldn't have been executed at all, since President Clerk issued a moratorium in 1990, placing all executions on hold for the next five years. Number 2. 227 Malhervey Street doesn't exist anymore. The entire house has been demolished, and the House of Horrors is now nothing more than an empty lot in the heart of Capitol Park, and the gate through which Joan escaped is covered in green handsprints in memory of the missing six. Number 3. The property was officially handed over to the Child Protection Unit with the idea that their new offices would be built there. However, the Department of Public Works never greenlit the project, so in 2019, a monument was raised on the lot in memory of the missing six, showcasing a billboard with six blooming flowers instead of the girls' photos. That would be, it was handed over to the CPU with the idea that their offices would be built there? In the previous child predator's house? I mean, I get it, but that's also kind of fucked up, guys. Number 4. Allegedly, Joey had applied multiple times to become a foster parent, even going so far as to call orphanages offering to house young girls for the holidays. Luckily, their applications were rejected. Number 5. Joey and Van Royen's crimes would tear their families apart, but at one point, all of them were more than happy to bask in the media's attention, making up elaborate stories that would devolve into the conspiracy theories that still haunt the case today. Number 6. Joey's daughter, Amore, recounts in her memoir how she and her husband were harassed by the police for years following her mother's death, and that for a good while, both of them were unable to keep a job due to their connection to the monster of Malherby Street. They finally managed to settle in Tambazimbi, and Amore is now a proud grandmother who made a point of teaching her grandkids to never trust strangers. Number 7. Aletta Van Roon reportedly never believed that Van Roon was guilty of the crimes that he had committed. She spent years being harassed by the public, with people going so far as to threaten to kidnap and kill her grandchildren. At one point, she decided to stop fighting it and allegedly answered the phone with the cheerful greeting, This is Peter Vile's wife speaking. How can I help you? Um, that is weird. Sounds like you lost your mind a little bit. Uh, this has been an episode of The Casual Criminalist. Thank you so much for watching or listening. If you're, you're, you're consuming as a podcast, if you are consuming as a podcast, please leave a review. If you're on YouTube, like and subscribe. And I'll see you next time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. 
With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.